Welcome back, everybody. Brian Tuck here, your host for Creator Confidential. Today is an interesting conversation. It's all about building an audience. It's all about crowdfunding. It's about making decisions as a creator in terms of making your own career path and balancing your need to do your work as you see fit versus creating content for specifically for an audience. I had a great conversation with food writer Estelle Tracy, and I'm not going to delay this any longer. Let's just jump right in. I think if you are trying to build a creative business, listen to Estelle because she's out there and she's doing it. Here we go. You're listening to Creator Confidential with Brian Tuck. Creator Confidential starts now. So thanks everybody for tuning in. This is a first for the podcast. We've never done any video component before and I'm very happy that you are either going to see this live and participate or you are going to watch this later and feel free to share this. Uh, with your friends and um, colleagues and peers. This is a podcast about small businesses that are in the create what I would call the creative space. So makers, filmmakers, writers, musicians, uh, playwrights, novelists, and also people that are working in what I would call non-traditional fields that have really made their own way and did not follow uh, a traditional path because I think there are a lot of people out there that are trying to figure out, you know, maybe you're in a job that you, you know, you're not, uh, not fond of, let's say it that way. Maybe you have, you know, you want a change in circumstance or you want to be your own boss. It's not easy when you're a freelancer to, um, it's not easy when you're a freelancer to figure out how do you get from where you are to where you want to go. And seated with me is Estelle Tracy, food writer and chocolate sommelier, which I didn't even know was a thing until recently uh, because I don't get out of the house very much, quite frankly. Um, but Estelle was was kind enough to join us today for a bit. And we're going to, we're going to be on Facebook Live for a little while. And if anyone wants to participate in the conversation, that would be fantastic. Um, and then we're going to record some more content, which will be which will be available later this week. So Estelle, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So why don't we start? I, I think it's important in these kinds of discussions to start at the present day. Mm-hmm. You know, almost start at the I don't want to say the end, but start with the most recent stuff, and then we can work our way back to see how it evolved to where you are today. So, so, you know, what would you, I hate labels. I think labels are, are not ideal, but you know, when someone asks you what you do for a living, what do you, what do you tell them? Yes. I tell them exactly what you just said, that I'm a food writer or freelance writer and chocolate sommelier. So it depends on how deep we want to get in the conversation, but that usually you know, gets the point across that I'm doing something that is not traditional 
and that is definitely creative. And uh, yeah, that's the short answer. <laughs> what, so what is so even for someone like me that I I like to think I know a couple of things here and there, but I I was aware that you would go you know whether it was a winery or a distillery mm-hmm. would host um, a tasting event and they might have a pairing with mm-hmm. you know food and wine or food and beverage and you started to see recently a lot of chocolate centric events happen how did this evolve how did you how did you get involved in this yeah i think that's uh i like i like that you went there um what you know when i say i'm freelance writer and the chocolate summer year people don't really understand what really that means like they don't they can't really understand what it is that i do on a day-to-day basis so from the chocolate front uh what i do is i create experiences and tastings in different venues. So it could be uh, a winery, it could be a brewery, and um, I work a lot with private golf and country clubs as well. Um, And what I try to do, I've eaten a lot of chocolate over the past four years. And what I try to do is I use my knowledge of what chocolate is out there and I create it in a way that will get a point across, that will either uh, get the point across that the world of chocolate is just as exciting as like scotch or whiskey or wine, or sometimes I'm interested in creating a memorable experience and I combine it with storytelling um, so that people will understand that chocolate is so much more than something that uh, they pick at the grocery store. So I'm interested in unearthing that knowledge and sharing it presenting it in a way that will make an impact or just that's going to make it memorable. So that's the chocolate. Well, and when you, and when you say pairing it with storytelling, that was one thing that really kind of interested me when we first, when we first spoke about it, because I couldn't, you know, for, for, for me, I can only speak for when things came on my you know radar screen so to speak Mm -hmm. but it really wasn't until i started taking notice of of you know people like anthony bourdain where i realized oh okay there's there's culture and there's history and there's travel associated with with certain Mm -hmm. you know food items and certainly you know chocolate's not a monolithic thing it doesn't all come from one country or one region. So maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, no, I I love that you made that parallel with Anthony Burden's travels. Um, What I like to say when, uh, you know, and I can ask you that question too, but like what I I like saying is that chocolate is a super familiar food. And when you start asking people, like, do you know where chocolate comes from? And I can ask you that question too. Uh, Do you know where chocolate comes from? Like from generally like do you know from from a tree yeah well that's that's already more than what some people say or like where it it comes from like can you name a chocolate like a cacao producing country uh i'm i i don't know i would assume i would assume similar climates to what produces coffee for some reason what that's a good guess brazil or Or, or South America primarily, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's really, I mean, that, that was all accurate. Um, but yeah, but like there are people who will tell me like Belgium grows cacao and I'm like, no, that is way off, like really way off. But what I'm saying is, um, as you said, 
cacao comes from a, a belt that's uh, that's called a, uh, the cacao belt that's located 20 degrees north and south of the equator. So the translation is for us, we can't go to the farmer's market and get a fresh ripe cacao pod like we can get a tomato. And because of that, we're missing that connection with where it's mm-hmm. coming from, at least in my opinion. And I think people right now are really big onto local movement and they're big farmers market supporters. And yet somehow that doesn't get translated necessarily for um, to the cacao and chocolate field. And um, what what is happening right now is that there is um, the same way you had the craft brewery, craft um, coffee movement. Um, those movements are well established. And in chocolate, it's been a, a little bit more slower and there just is just like the craft chocolate movement um it's not even defined in all honesty but it's like that movement of like knowing where the food is coming from that's exploding right now um and so that's where my interest is and when you get to that angle where you could you um well like what when you look at coffee what makes specialty coffee uh you know different from commodity coffee it's there is a sense of origin, right? Mm-hmm. And so right. same goes with chocolate and cacao. And then when you buy a bar from the grocery store, it's very rare that you're able to say, oh, it's coming from this country, from that farm. And when you get into the craft chocolate or specialty chocolate, then you actually get to go to drill down to the, the, the farm, at least the country. Then you can go to maybe the co-op or they're the farmer. And that has been... Uh, kind of my journey uh, through that specialty chocolate or fine chocolate or craft chocolate, wherever, however we want to put it. Uh, <clears throat> well, and, and you have some in, similar to the beverage industry where, um, you know, I'm, I'm primarily thinking of uh, breweries more than anything else where mm-hmm. you've got, you have a few massive businesses that control a lot of the market and thus, are buying up a lot of the, a lot of the raw materials mm. in so in the chocolate world a similar dynamic exists I would think right between who Hershey um, and the, or am I off base am I, um it's there's there I have definitely heard um, I can only speak for the stories that have come trickled down to my level as an educator but I have heard stories like you know there are some um, origins that are more desirable than others for this, or mm-hmm. like that are trendier somehow. Like a few years ago, Belize was super popular and they had a um, not rainy enough season and the harvest wasn't as good. So then you do have some chocolate makers competing for the same beans. And the competition at that level wasn't with like the big companies necessarily, but like who is the biggest within the smallest, right? That That's kind of what trickled down to me, like mm-hmm. the stories I've heard. Right. Um, but the reality is that there is an oversupply of specialty cacao, or at least there was last year. That's what I was, that, that's what I read. Um, and, and a lot has to do, from what I understand again, is that you've heard this like, catastrophe scenarios like oh my gosh there won't be like you know cacao is going to get extinct and like chocolate is going to disappear so that apparently has caused people to plant an oversupply of cacao and then there's not necessarily a place for for the cacao to go so it's uh 
because the most people are not aware of uh, finer chocolates. Like people know what craft beer is. Like even if you don't drink it, I think that people know what it is. With chocolate, people, I mean, that's why I go in front of people and like share the chocolate with them. It's because they're not aware of that. So the consumer is not is not as prime as in the say the craft brewery. So some of the problems I think are the same and others are different. But like in terms of supply, it's like just the market isn't as developed as craft beer, for instance. Do you think that's due due to the idea, or it seems to me that in the craft brewery world, you've got brewers that also have retail outlets. They've got pubs, they've got brew pubs that people can go to to congregate around. But in you know in the chocolate world, there really is not an analogous gathering place. You have to you have to make them happen. That's a very good point. Right? Yes, that's a very good point. Um, that's definitely a part of it. Um, there is like there are different I think reasons. That's definitely one because you know you can even get like a you can get to the you know like the brewing company next door and if you really don't know anything about beer you get the uh you know like a sampler you get a flight of different beers try mm-hmm. a lot of things without spending that much money um well you don't really get to do that with chocolate right. but also a a very good argument i had heard um on that topic is uh so that came from a place called it's a chocolate making school online so it's called Ecole chocolat and on the blog post they were saying how when you think about craft, you know, I don't know, like say even coffee. I mean, coffee. There's not not a minimum like legal age, but like mm-hmm. uh, beer or whiskey or wine. These are all foods that we learn to appreciate as adults. So we don't have a frame of reference. Um, you know, we don't compare to what we grew up with. Versus chocolate, we have it as children from a very young age, and that becomes a very emotional food. And I think sometimes we're not as open to trying um, a pricier chocolate bar or something that's a single origin that has different flavor notes because we know what we like. We know what's going to give us pleasure and that's going to be whatever bar, whatever piece of candy from when we're growing up and we were knocking on doors, not me, but, you know, Americans (laughs) knocking on doors on Halloween. So it's very hard to compete with something you have a visceral attachment to right you know compared to to beer and, and things i like to say also uh beer and you know these alcohols come with the alcohol and i think that appeals to people chocolate doesn't come with alcohol <laughs> so if it came with it maybe it would be easier but um there are like other benefits like you know chocolate is like an indulgence versus wine or beer is something you drink at the end of the day to relax almost you know <clears throat> Well, why don't we pause here and we want to thank everybody for joining us on Facebook. And if you're watching this later on, I'm going to post uh, the location where you can hear the extended, the the rest of this conversation, um, because we're going to get into a couple of issues. Uh, One is crowdfunding, which is vital for any creator who is trying to make a product, whether it's a book or a record or, um, you know, a play. You like, you have to find backers to finance these things sometimes. Crowdfunding is a great way to do that. And also we're going to talk about audience building because those two things go hand in hand. Without building an audience, 
if you are, you know, if you're trying to basically create your own company, which is really what you're doing, you're a small business. If you can't build an audience, you're not going to get very far because it's the audience that those are your customers. That's where your revenue stream is going to come from. So um, thanks very much for watching us on Facebook and just watch the comment thread down below and I'll post when, when the complete interview is published, which will be later this week. So we're going to take a break. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So when we stopped, we stopped the Facebook piece for a little bit and we're back now with some really more um, how-to kinds of topics, primarily audience building and crowdfunding, which without which no creative business gets off the ground. You can have the greatest product or service or, um, you know, in any industry, but without customers to buy it, you're, you're, you're in, uh, you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So I, when Estelle and I had met before, before today, I was telling her a story. Uh, I, I was talking to a jazz drummer who in musical circles, everybody knows who this guy is. I won't use his name. Um, and we were talking about this exact topic. And I said, you know, you seem like you're doing quite well. How did you do it? You know, how on, how on earth do you, do you work in a musical style that only 3% of the, of everyone that listens to music likes, right? So jazz is a very niche product. If you wanted to talk about it as a product, he said something very interesting to me. He said, I don't need a million followers. I don't need 10 million followers. I need a hundred thousand. If I have a hundred thousand people worldwide who follow me, I'll be fine because they are brand, you know, the people that follow him are brand loyal. So they support the recordings, the DVDs, you know, whatever content is being put out for sale. And that got me to thinking about every business has a magic number. So in, and, and in every industry, it's a little bit different. So, you know, for what I do in my, in my day job, as it were, as, as a solo attorney, if I have, you know, 200 or 300 people that I'm in regular contact with, then I'm going to have a good year. Um, with what you do, again, it's a different industry. Do you know what that number is or about what you, th what you think that number is in terms of, of – and when I say audience, I mean, um, you know, there are sites like Gumroad and Patreon and some right. other uh, sites out there where, where it's almost like uh, a contract, you know, if you follow me, I will put content up right. that no one else gets to see, but please send me a dollar a video or right. to whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. Well, do you know what that number is for you? Um, I do not know what that number is uh, because I take it a bit backward for people who watch the beginning. Uh, we're talking to the beginning of the interview when we were talking about the chocolate sommelier that I do. The other part of what I do is um, being a writer, right? And actually, I didn't start my solo printer journey with the chocolate. That came later. What, um, what really 
I had been known for some time in very specific circle was to uh, my French food blog focused on U.S. food and, um, you know, the food. Like it, it was a, a French food blog about the food I was trying here in the U.S. So I've been in the U.S. for 17 years now. And um, that blog started in 2004 and I closed it like a year or so ago. And from that, actually from that blog, uh, I got the idea to work on a food survivor guide for French expats in the U.S. And uh, that's all I had when I left my corporate work four years ago. And I realized quickly that as well as the book was doing, um, I wasn't going to make a living from the book alone. And um, I knew that also I felt not complete. Like there was this feeling inside that I knew like I'm not done. There is something else I need to find. And um, I knew I needed to, to, um, to find it. So once... So that was in 2015. So when I, so the book, the book is here. So that's, it was a different cover, but when uh, I got the book out, it was July around that time, actually. So what I did is I set, I set myself up to, to sample and review 37 chocolate made in the U.S. uh, in honor of my 37th birthday. And I did that on, I reviewed everything on YouTube. I've always been super into the internet like from the moment i discovered the internet i knew it would be part of a big part of my life so i was a very early blogger i i explored almost every social media platform and not because it's trendy or you're supposed to be there but it's just like it's fascinating to me how you can share your message with so many people with so little infrastructure so so that, and then the chocolate, then what happened is that led eventually to tastings and tasting is super seasonal. So I have right now a portfolio of like, you know, I can do the math for the chocolate tasting, like how many clients do I need a month? The thing that kind of is a little complicated is chocolate is very seasonal and I have very busy mm-hmm. month and nobody wants to eat chocolate, at least not the way I do in the dead of July. For instance, but they it's, should. Yeah, of that's course the next should. challenge. You yeah. Let's let's back up a little yeah. bit. Um, so your book is how do I get a copy of that uh, if I wanted to purchase? So that book, <laughs> uh, you can you can you can hold it right now if you want it. Right. Uh, I, I want to see. I'm gonna hold this. Up so this right book. Like that. Um, that guy. I, so we we're gonna get a little bit about this book. So um, the idea of this book had been inside me for like almost a decade. So I had had so much time to know exactly um, what I wanted it to be. And it really started from three blog posts that I combined into a PDF before eBooks were even a thing. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, uh, 2006 when that PDF I started. um, Thank you. It was Mm -hmm. 2006 when I I was sharing the PDF. So that was like pre-smartphone, pre-Kindle, pre-whatever. So... Um, and I gave it away for free without even capturing uh, people's email addresses, which was a terrible idea. But the point is, it got it got out. And what I got of it being out is people told me exactly what they wanted. It. They said, well, uh, um, the first blog posts were about dairy and about um, baking products. Then they said, I want you to talk about potatoes and I want you to talk about meat and I want you to talk about organic foods. And so... 
people actually told me exactly what the layout of the book should be. So by having put the work out there, even though it was free, I got such valuable feedback mm -hmm. that I knew exactly what the chapters were going to be, right? So that was into, um, I gave away the first PDF for nine years. And then what was interesting is to see that people would not necessarily talk about my blog post, but they would always go back to that PDF. And so I knew that if it was on people's awareness, like for nine years, it would be there for more time. So when I, um, so when I decided that, okay, I'm going to make money with this. So that was 2015. It was in, uh, so I, I left my work, uh, March 7th. That was like when I gave my, like when I left the company and then I gave myself April 7th as a deadline, mm -hmm. I said that ebook is going to get out at the time. I thought, okay, ebooks are going to be like everybody said, that's like everybody reads on Kindle and nobody reads books. I'm like, okay, it's going to be an ebook. So what I had no idea what to do. Like, I mean, all I knew to do anything. So I did everything by myself. Um, I did the uh, layout on Word, Microsoft Word. Yeah. That is all I knew. So uh, I like I didn't even have a cover. I had a little logo, and I just wrote the name, the title of the book. Like, uh, and that was it. Um, so it was a Microsoft Word, and then I saved it as a PDF. And I'm like, how do how are gonna people gonna get this in exchange of money? So I I, I found out about a, a service called eJunkie, but I didn't like the um, it felt very like 1993, like it was so old. I'm like, okay, I, I'll keep looking. And at the time I was subscribing to a magazine, so Fast Company magazine, and it just so happened that the latest issue was on my uh, dining room table, open to, I was just like flipping, it was like 100 like up and coming entrepreneurs. And there was this guy who was like laying down on the table and um, he he said he was creator of a product called Gumroad, and what that was is that that's he said like that's a a platform that he created to help um, creators sell directly to their audience, mm -hmm. and instead of say you know Amazon Kindle where he, what like, with the argument he made is like when somebody buys something from Amazon, it's Amazon's customer and the relationship is over, like it never started with you. Versus if you sell directly to your audience, you'll keep, you know, the customer data, you know where they live, you'll know, um, you'll have their email address. And then the day you have a second book, you can actually email them and let them know. Yeah. And in that moment, I just thought sold. That was it. I didn't research anything more. And I went on Gumroad. And that's where, to this day, that's where my uh, digital products are sold. So the so you do not use and and i agree with you completely about amazon because it's impossible it, it, you know in some ways it's like itunes uh you don't know who's listening or who is buying your music or your podcasts uh, amazon the same thing you sell a book through amazon all you are notified of is that you had 10 sales or 20 sales last week or, or whatever it might be, or better, a thousand sales would be better, but you get the point. <laughs> and you never know who, who those people are. And, and capturing information is so important um, for audience building and community building that um, it cannot be overstated. So that's why um, I, after I spoke with you, I, I got my own Gumroad site. Oh, I'm going to start working on that. But uh that's the last thing you need is one more 
one more uh, one more thing to do. But um, so you've been so you've been on there for how many years? Four years. Four years. Four years. And what? How many? Fo- so you have followers on Gumroad the same way you do Patreon, right? Um, yeah, I'm not too familiar with Patreon, um, mm-hmm. but I know um, I have followers, but I also have all or like my existing customers or previous customers. So for instance, um, so you have two models on Gumroad. You have a premium version that mm-hmm. um, lets you use the system as what's called a CRM, so a customer relationship management yep. system. And so you can do, you can directly email people. Um, uh, I mean, and you can use the platform to like reimburse people or like, you know, if they're not happy, I mean, hopefully not, but like, or somebody made a purchase by accident. You can do all these things there. Um, I like the CRM function. I can filter and see, well, um, I can see what, who did uh, buy this product. Like I have a survival guide like here. Um, Earlier this year, I released the survival recipes. And so what I did is that, um, so I let all the survival guide people know that I had the survival recipe. Some of them purchased and then some of them didn't. But then what happened is that I created a workflow so that, Somebody who buys the food survival guide um, a month later will get an, an automatic email that's going to say, hey, now that you know where to find all your favorite, like all your groceries, like you know how to browse through a U.S. grocery store, now you can actually get cooking. And here are ten, like all the recipes that you can use. So I give them a month to kind of like when go through like the survival guide and then they get this offer that, Oh, did you know I have this other book, for instance? So this, so tell us about the second book. What, so what's the title? Okay, so I actually have three. The second three. one is a blueberry recipe collection that's here. The the third one is actually an ebook right now. Um, mm-hmm. So um, what happened is like I've been, uh, ever since I resigned from my corporate job, I essentially have had a book launch a year, which is very tiring. Yes. So I've had, yes, so, it is. You, you know, yeah. So the food survivor guide, it's actually its third release. So the first one I, I actually got, I, this is a, a cool thing for like creators. My, I have a personal rule that when two people ask you the same thing, you pay attention. When the third one asks, you have to pull the trigger. And so three people asked me to buy the, the paper version. Mm-hmm. And so that was still in 2015, four months after the PDF was released. I released um, the first version of the paper copy, and then I released 250 copies of it. Then I got some publicity. I invested the money in the cover. Then the following year, I printed 550 copies of this. And then that following year, I I wanted to like that's that has a whole story of its own. But like these are ten recipes around blueberries inspired. So they're all in French, all inspired by like Chester County. Um, and uh, and then the third one that came out in January, which is an ebook. Uh, so that that came, that is survival recipes. It's twenty five recipes and formula to tame your American kitchen. But before, so <laughs> going back to the survival guide, actually, so last year, and then we're going to talk more about that. But last year, I knew I wanted to print a thousand copies of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I knew, okay, it's time for, uh, like, I cannot pour my money every time. Like, it's it was, every time mm-hmm. it's been completely self-funded. And at some point, I thought, okay, um, maybe it's time for me to look into different, uh, 
different ways to fund this. But what's interesting is that I had had a I had a Kickstarter goal, a crowdfunding goal, and I had a second goal, a stretch goal. And I said, if I make it to the stretch goal, I'm going to compile 10 recipes, like 10 recipes that you're going to get as a PDF for free. But that thing kind of got a life of its own. And then I couldn't stop. And I ended up at 25. And then that's what was, that became its own product. And I said, it's going to be a PDF for a whole year and see what happens. That's what, that was kind of the thing. So yes. um, So you get to know through that book, you get to know, like to make things from the grocery store in France that you can't easily find here. I give you like recipes how to make that um, or like cakes that used French flour and like very specific ingredients. I give you ways to make that taste like as yummy in your American kitchen. Well, you, you said there's been a theme in the things that you have been talking about in terms of the progression mm-hmm. of of your writing from ebook to paper copy that giving sort of rise to the second book and to the third. One one thing people ask me in, in, in my other life as a musician where I seem to have a, a fertile time where there might be three or four projects going on at the same time yes. or one right after the next without any real downtime is what I've found is that, and I, I think you might have a similar experience, that when you're in that space, yeah. that headspace, you really just have to keep going because eventually it, it might stop, you know, if, 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 uh, and that, that's me being paranoid a little bit. But if you listen to, you know, you've got two different dynamics here. One, you've got things that you feel you have to create Mm -hmm. just because that's what's on your mind. That's what you feel you want to write about or you want to publish about. And also there's a dynamic of, of your customers kind of, I don't want to say steering, but suggesting Mm -hmm. the ways in which you deliver your content or, or, or how it gets paid for in some circumstances. Um, how do you balance doing what you want to do? Like the old kind of saw that, you know, the artist's duty is only to him or herself and you create things for yourself and other people happen, you know, other people happen to like it too versus you seeing a trend Uh among the people you talk about and you go, geez, there really is nothing like a 37 chocolates right. or a, a survival guide to an American kitchen. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fill that, that need with my own work. How do you, how do you. Oh, I love that question. I really love that question because to me it goes down to, are you a professional creator or are you a hobbyist or amateur and mm-hmm. without any judgment there. So I feel like I'm, I have lived both positions like both roles like when i had my food blocks the number one 
my number one thing was that I'm writing for myself. I used to always say for me and my mother, I, mm-hmm. I used to tell my mom like, hey, did you read that thing? Like, what did you think? Like, it was very clear. I was like, it had to satisfy my own need first. Right. And if I wrote on the give, like if I want to write on the Thursday because I feel like it, because it was me first, I wanted to, mm-hmm. to kind of satisfy that creative urge. And it was for me, I was doing it, me and my mom, as I said, right? And if other people would, like it or like would find it helpful for me it was gravy like that's the way I saw it um but I didn't have any you know like um I didn't have I didn't feel any kind of outside constraint like you know um you know I never promised to deliver content like on a weekly basis or like to give people I never asked what people at the time I never asked people like do you want this no it was all about you know, I have a busy corporate life. Like, you know, I have a job. I have a 40-hour job. I have kids, at, you know, eventually. It's like, this is for me. This is like my self-care or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So it was my need first and whoever comes next, fantastic. And so that said, I did was in touch with the fact that people were really like, really like that survival guide idea. So that, but what, again, what the difference between the amateur, I think, and the professional is that I just was like, oh yeah, you can have it for free. I don't care. Like, you know, it's okay. I don't have to benefit from this. Like, it's just, I did it for me. Now you take advantage of it and whatever. Uh, But then when I, I stopped, you know, I left corporate and I'm like, I'm going to write this book it was a complete mindset shift. I'm like, you know, this is, this is serious. This is a, an endeavor. Like this is, you know, I'm here to serve people. So I went from, I'm taking care of myself, Mm -hmm. which is great to like, no, now it has grown. I've become better writer. I've been more like, I've grown in so many ways. Um, like I had over a decade of like writing practice. So I was a better writer for instance. I'm like, Mm -hmm. now it's like, I'm at a level where I can turn this into a business, right? So um, that was, I felt like that shift was like, it took me almost six months to manage to like easing from and taking care of myself to like I'm serving people. And now it's like even I'm super consistent on social media. Um, I try to really like worry, not worry, but like I care about what is the problem that people have at this moment, like in the season, for instance, is it lunchbox? They have issues with like for the French expat, like I am super in tune with that. Mm-hmm. And same thing for the chocolate, like chocolate at the beginning for the YouTube was like, I'm doing it for me. And that, that was enough at the time. But then uh, I had an opportunity to um, do a chocolate tasting at the library. Then uh, my net, my local network grew and then I realized that people, when I, like the people wanted wine and chocolate, wine and chocolate pairings, they were interested in that. You know, I don't come from a white background. I'm like, if this is what people want, I will train myself in wine. That's just what I'm gonna do. So because I'm in a position to serve, that kind of like you will do things that you didn't think about, or maybe in a different context you wouldn't mm-hmm. feel like. But that's, it's like so important for me to know where you belong. Like there's no in between. It's like either you take care of your needs or like if you decide that you are a pro, yes, the creative urge satisfying that is super important. But I don't get, for me, the way I see it is like, I don't complain that I have to spend more time promoting that creating or like, oh, people keep asking me about this and it's so boring. I don't get to have those judgments because I made the commitment 
to live a professional life as a creator. And so that that's like, yeah, that that just changes. That's how that's the mindset I have. And something else that I think should not be lost in 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 our discussion here for for everyone that's watching is that your crowdfunding or it seems correct me if I'm wrong your crowdfunding experience followed the audience building process a bit so many people now like you see on Facebook or or whatever social media channels you like you see people trying to crowdfund or source money for projects when it's their first thing out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And it it's a lot easier if you have a following that you've already cultivated. And in your case, it seems like it was a matter of years. Yeah, over a decade. Um, of that's So for everybody that thinks, you know, they can skip the hard work and the audience <laughs> development, you, you can't. It takes a long time. It takes consistent and sustained effort to be able to build an audience. And then once you have that audience of however many people, 200 or 500 or 1,000 or 10,000, whatever it is, that is the base from which you can hopefully get some financial relief in terms of production costs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your, your first your first writing products were self-financed. Yes. And that's, you know, if you don't, if you believe in yourself enough to do the creative work, you should be able to believe in yourself enough to, to pay the bill. You got to, you got to fund those first couple projects. Mm -hmm. Then you've got a body of work to show people Mm -hmm. so that they know what they're supporting Mm -hmm. because without that, they, you're just some guy or gal you know, asking for money. So that's right. Um, the, the audience building component and how long that takes and, and, and doing all that hard work cannot be lost in, in, in the, in the discussion here, you, you've got to do the work it takes. There really is no overnight success, even though like all the game shows on TV, like American Idol and the voice and all this other stuff, they make you think that it's easy. It is not. You you have to build the audience first, then you can crowdsource, you know, financing different projects. Right. Yeah, and like and in, in my case, I had my audience building was started in 2004 when I was blogging. I blogged for like a good decade. And um, what was interesting also because I've been on the internet doing things and building things for so long, I actually saw trends shifting. I actually want what also um, I would, you know, urge people who are interested in building their own audience to always like be extremely curious, explore so many like platforms um, and I mean other things, but like what I mean is that um, one of the reasons I stopped blo- blogging on my French blog, um, although the archives are still um, available for anybody interested, if you Google hamburger and croissant, so that was the name of the blog, like that will pop up. You'll see like 700 blog posts, whatever. And 
what happened is that that took so much of my time to write something. There is an expectation that it's going to be a little polished on the blog post, not as polished on the book as on the book, but there is, you know, it's going to have a mm-hmm. uh, nice syntax. You're not going to use emojis and things like that. But I kept f- thinking to myself, my gosh, like, um, so Google was ignoring my blog by then. I had neglected it for too long and like I was not getting that much traffic. And I thought, there has to be a quicker way, quicker, I mean, quote unquote, but like um, what I wanted is like, I saw the emergence of Facebook groups uh, four years ago, like it was exploding. And um, what I did is that instead of putting my energy onto the blog, I said, okay, it all comes down to me, it comes down to community, right? And so what I did is that I created my own Facebook group about, um, so I started two before the third one really took off. Like I have, I have three total. Um, what I liked about Facebook group is like a blog can feel a lot like, especially after a while you feel like, okay, I've exhausted everything I had to say about myself. And it's like, I'm ready to like invite other people to share what they have to say. And so what I felt was like, I would love, um, oh, this is how I got the idea of the Facebook group. Like People would buy my book, The Food Survival Guide, and then they would send me a message on Facebook saying, look, I found this French product in Houston, Texas. Look, I found this other French bakery in like Los Angeles. And I'm like, that's great, but I don't live there. And they had, <laughs> right? like they, they had, but they wanted yeah. to share it. And I said, why don't I create a group <laughs> where that's what people are going to share to the people who, for whom this matter. So there were some growing pains. I mean, this, I started it a little over three years ago. So now that that Facebook group I have grew to over, almost seven thousand members now in three years. So what, that and what's the name of that Facebook? Group? Uh, it's in French. It's called Bon Plan Gourmet aux États-Unis. So it's French food finds. It's like food finds in the U.S., but it's it's written in French. So the assumption is like it's we're talking about mostly French things. Um, but that was like. Uh, I mean, what I did and going back to Gumroad, what happened is like um, I I was collecting email addresses, for instance, and then send um, growing that list. Everybody would tell you that, I mean, in online marketing, that is like the core of what you do. Having access to that email list is like so important. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I emailed the people and they say, hey, guys, I launch this Facebook group so that you can continue interacting with one another. Like all of you who have this book in common at the time, you can interact for one another with one another. So what that helped was like really it, it had build a community, get people in touch with one another. And also it kind of like the group kind of st- became a feeder um, for, for like for my book is like mm-hmm. people would get to know me. And they knew it was my group and like they appreciated the culture that I created. And um, that's one of the way that I continued nurturing an audience, you know, and then they buy the book or they, they found the, they had back the Kickstarter and, and those kind of things. So, yeah, so that I switched from blogging to that Facebook group. And then also not only is it a place for people to interact after they made the purchase, but it's also for other people to connect and then make the purchase. So that's been, that's been huge for me. Um, and we will link to the things that, that Estelle's talking about. We will link to those. So if you're, if you're listening to the audio only, um, it, it will be in the show notes, or if you're on the website, creatorconfidential.com, 
in in the web page for this episode, all of these links will be here. So just go to the website. You can navigate mm-hmm. your way to Estelle's Facebook group or her Gumroad page um, or, or, or anything else that she would care to direct you all to. Um, what's, what do you have uh, looking forward a little bit? What do you have, what do you have coming up that you're excited about? There are a few things I have. I think I have exciting months and years. Um, so when I, what was interesting when I ran my crowdfunding campaign, so last year I ran that crowdfunding campaign mm-hmm. that was a 140% funded for the book. Um, oh, 140%. So what was your, this is, this is really important too. I meant to ask you this earlier. So uh, for the crowdfunding campaign for the book, mm-hmm. what was your fundraising target? How, many, how much money? 3600 so for for like uh, the retail price of the book that I just showed you is mm-hmm. uh, fifteen dollars. Okay. So I had the target of uh, thirty six hundred, and I raised five thousand. Now, in today's world, that may not sound like a lot. Mm-hmm. Trust me, people. If you've ever tried to do what <laughs> Estelle has done, that's a lot of money, and to exceed your goal like that is terrific yeah, it be- is. because then you've got a little bit extra for marketing or, or some expense yeah. that you, you know, you can put it back into the production when you might not have expected it. Um, how many, how many backers, do you know how many backers there were? I think it was 196, 196 backers. So we're doing some math. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. And I'm, well, I'm trying to think. So in terms of percentages to get 196 backers, you had to get your message in front of I. I mean, I would think, you know, with it with a two percent conversion rate, ten thousand people would have had to have seen the request yeah, to get two hundred to actually click through. And maybe right. your and maybe your conversion rate's a lot higher yeah. than that. I just um, I, I'm basing that on other conversations that I've had in terms of crowdfunding with people. Um, because again, it's, it's with Facebook enabling people to raise money on their birthday and every day you get, you get one request just from that aspect of, of online life. Yeah. So people are, I, I think it is actually a little bit counterproductive because people become desensitized to, asks for money you know you go to cvs or you go to uh, the drugstore or the grocery store and at the checkout they ask you well, would you like to do- donate a dollar to mm-hmm. you know the children's hospital or to cancer research so people get multiple requests every day this and this is a relatively new phenomenon this didn't this wasn't a thing even five years ago mm-hmm. this rarely happened um Unless it was Salvation Army or somebody standing out on a corner mm-hmm. with 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 a, a display that that we're, we're trying to do, you know, peer to peer fundraising. So, um, crowdfunding is going to get tougher, I, I suspect. But if the product is great, people will support it, which is really the, I think, end all be all of of yeah. And if that. you if you build the trust, you know, like I like how you know Seth Godin says like. Kickstarter should be called kick finisher. Um, you know, right. I think that, you know, you were mentioning like Salvation Army, you know, that has the recognition. Everybody knows the Salvation mm-hmm. Army. You know where the money goes, so to speak. Um, like, you know, we we talked about like I funded 
three prints of my books before asking for the fourth. And uh, by now, people know I'm here to stay. Like I've been, you know, like I've been doing this for four years. And what's very interesting is that, so I did the survival recipes. And what happened is that, um, so we're talking, yes, going back to survival recipes, which was like the bonus I gave as a PDF. Mm -hmm. I had to reimburse two people because they were convinced it was a paper copy book. Like they just knew it. And I'm like, no, uh, it's only an ebook. And they said, I'll wait for the paper copy. Um, You can reimburse me now, but please tell me when the paper. It's interesting with books. Some people do not want the Kindle version or, uh-huh. or you know, they want the physical thing in their hand, which uh, I can respect. Everybody likes to consume things differently. Then the other thing I'll tell you about paper book, that the thing that is so easy to miss. So it's very interesting. Going back to crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have, I use Kickstarter as a platform, which is an all or nothing. And, um, right. and so what I did what I did is like I had access to like all my metrics and my analytics and I knew 50% of people came from Facebook and right 25% came from Instagram mm-hmm. and going back to Instagram. Um, so essentially 75% of my backers came from social media. Right. And so what, what, what the thing is with Instagram is that's a platform that's really keeps growing and steadily growing. Like I feel like people do leave Facebook on and off, but they don't really leave Instagram on and off. Like they, they don't have that kind of conflictive relationship with Facebook. Mm-hmm. When you have a paper book, people can post a photo of your actual book. Like you can, it's very hard to promote an ebook on Instagram, on a visual platform, like you can, you know, like people can post photos, they can do stories. So having that paper copy is like, for me, that's been so huge. I mean, that's 25%, like that did come yeah. from that. So the, um, so, so the, with the survival recipes, that's been a lot harder to promote because I don't have a photo of the book. I only have a photo of the cover. Uh, I still, I mean, it costs me, um, I created the, the, like, what do you call the cover by myself using Unsplash and then Canva. So it cost me like pennies to like create that PDF. So every, every, everything, every purchase is like complete profit for that. But I can see that I would go so much further if I had a paper copy uh, between the people who are asking for it. And the other thing is the recipes, like people want to like flip through, like if they, I find that it is uh, preventing them to use the same book over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I want to have like a staple like that. Um, so, but what's very interesting is like by now I've developed really tight bonds with like a lot of the French expat, like a lot of people on social media that are part of the French expat community. And there are people who are really excited that I have a new book or something. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to, I started now for next year, I know I'm going to run another Kickstarter campaign for the survival recipes. Um, so right now I'm at the service stage where I'm asking people, how did you use the PDF as long as what are the recipes that you you did over and over again, which recipes you wish were there. And like, so I'm gathering feedback to work on like the, the version 2.0 mm-hmm. with photos and everything is going to be professionally laid out and so on and so forth. Uh, but so I'm at that stage, but I'm already telling people next year in 2020, I'm going to have a Kickstarter because I want like them to get excited. But some people have said to me, 
I love it when you give us a chance to support you financially. Like people are really excited yeah. when like they say, you know, like I feel like, you know, this is really, you've done this. You've created that community on Facebook, whatever. Some people really feel that urge that I'm so happy to like, you know, give you now, you know, like I may give in terms of my time and energy and people then they don't feel like they're being trapped in giving because I've been giving so much for like over a decade. Right. And then when the yeah. time, you know, when the time comes, they're there for me because I've been giving and I've been active on social media when I'm not campaigning because it's so easy. That's my pet peeve. I don't like when like, you know, you back a project and they ask, 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 you give. And then there's no update. And it's like, well, what happened? Right. Where are you in your project? Like I make a point to update my people. All my backers get an update every two weeks after the project, until the project completion. Then I, just, I went to the print shop. I went to this. I'm working on this. If there is a delay. I will tell them if there's a delay. And I said, you know, I will communicate every two weeks. And I try to make sure as much as possible, like I was really on time giving, sending everything to my backers. Like that is so important because the next time they know what I delivered the previous time. So they, like that, that's like goes to on my track record, but mm -hmm. it's so important. I have so many like crowdfunding pet peeves like that. But the one is like, once you get the money and you disappear, that is not cool. Like that is really not cool. Right. You know? Um, yeah. And show up like my, my rule on social media, like Instagram story on, I have two handles. The French one is at Estelle Tracy. I post this story literally every 24 hours. Like I'm going to be there every single day. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. <laughs> and I, say, I mean, yes and no, because it's like, I've always had this urge to share everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything. I use it loosely. But like, you know, um, I have a nice connection. Like I share quotes, you know, if I find something from somewhere. Like it's very rare for me to skip a day. Um, and that, you know, like... It, it's a nice way to stay in touch. And that's where also I had shared about, you know, there's a Kickstarter next year and then it's a nice way to gauge people's interest. But you have to be so respectful of the people who back you, who are there for you. Mm -hmm. You know, as you said, it's like everybody's asking for money, but what is going to set you apart? Yeah, you're not a con a, a, a taker all the time, <laughs> you know, right. like you, well, you do. It's, it's your relationship with yeah. your audience is really is, is absolutely really what it is. and you should cherish it you know like mm -hmm. that you should cherish it you should feel lucky for it like fortunate for it have so much gratitude for it and and i think if you treat it this way um it it shows i mean uh but but yeah it, there is no easy trick i mean there are ways you know you can get your crowdfunding campaign in front of more people i've learned that i have all these hacks you know that have worked really well for me but um yeah i mean there is like it's it's a day in day out but like that's going back to like being a professional or an amateur like i'm a professional i will show up i will show up because i'm i'm in this for like a long long time mm -hmm. you know yep so well i hope you all have enjoyed the conversation we will link to the projects that estelle has has referred to and I hope that you got something out of this hour. And if you would be so inclined, you can subscribe to the audio version of the podcast on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, basically anywhere you get your audio podcasts, you could find us. And um, also there's a Facebook page for the podcast, which we do exactly what 
Estelle has been uh, describing so well, which is sharing content and, um, you know, trying to build a community. So thanks again. And Estelle, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. And best of luck. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential. To get future episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, follow the show on SoundCloud, or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net. Creative Confidential is a production of Force 10 Media and the Tuck Law Office.